Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today it's part one of the Gospel of John, chapter 13. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hey everybody, welcome back to Seeking Truth for our study of John chapter 13. Okay, we are done with the book of signs. We're done. We did all seven signs. We're entering in tonight to the book of glory, chapters 13 to 20. We saw all seven signs and we are now entering the book of glory. It's a phenomenal part of John. He tells us tonight that now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. His hour. This is John's theme of the hour. We've been seeing it over and over and over again. This is the hour in the book of glory. The first hour at Cana. And and Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. And then they were going to arrest him. In in John 7, he said, my hour has not yet come. And in John 8, his hour had not yet come. But tonight he says he knew that his hour had come. This is it. This is it. So it's very different than the synoptics. For John, this hour is the hour of glory. And for the synoptics, it's a suffering servant. It's a horrible hour of agony on the cross. But for John, it's glory. It's the hour of exaltation and glorification. He's told us that several times, starting in John 3, that the Son of Man must be lifted up so everyone can have eternal life. And when you have lifted up the Son of Man, and again in John 12, when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all people to myself. The Son of Man must be lifted up. He's going to be lifted up on the cross. Then he's going to be lifted up in mass. And we're all going to be drawn to him. We're going to be drawn to him in adoration when he's lifted up. So for John, he gets it in a deep, deep, mystical, spiritual way. He's a master of this. And so it's an exaltation, the hour of the cross. Now, not only that, they don't understand. In this chapter, they don't get it yet. And they haven't got it at all up until this. But only after Jesus was glorified, then they begin to realize these things that had been written about him, these prophecies from the Old Testament, all these things that had been done to him start making sense. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And now, tonight, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. So this is just a whole different thing. And what we're talking about tonight goes for four chapters. This discourse they're having tonight lasts for four chapters. It's a long dinner party. And Jesus is preparing the apostles for his exodus. He's the new Moses. He's having an exodus, a departure from the world. So tonight we begin the book of glory. One thing we have to know with John is the theme of the bridegroom. And we're going to see it in these next four chapters starting tonight. But John's going to use several Old Testament antique Jewish wedding traditions to teach us. And they go over people's head a lot because we don't know Jewish weddings, most of us. But this is what John is banking on. The passion and the cross of Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of ancient Jewish prophecies of a wedding. When the God of the universe would wed himself to all humankind in an everlasting nuptial covenant. This is a wedding. This is a wedding. Welcome to the wedding feast. Now, the very first wedding in the Bible is the primordial marriage. 
And it's not just Adam and Eve, but it's Adam and Eve and God. They're all three wed. They're wed together. This is really important because we have to know what we lost to see what we have to get back. So Adam and Eve are the primordial first wedding in Genesis, but they're wedding their creator. They're wedded to God. In God, they have everything. They have original holiness. They don't really need anything because they've got God. They're in union with the Trinity. It's a perfection of union. It's a hidden trinity because Jesus is the tree of life and the Holy Spirit is the water of life, but they talk face to face with God whenever they want. They partake in his divine life. They're wedded to him. But when they sin, they lose that. When they sin, they get expelled from union with God. They're not in communion with him anymore. And sin is what separates them from this fullest communion with God, the trinity. But God in his mercy is gonna kill his first creature. It's an animal. He's going to cover their shame and their guilt with an animal skin, and he's going to teach them to use the blood of the animal to offer a blood atonement for their sin. They could offer an atonement back to God to atone for their sin, to make up for it. And it's a blood sacrifice, and he teaches them how to do that before he expels them from the garden. So after the fall, everything's changed. They were in this perfect equality, in this perfect unity with God, and now this is the curse the woman gets, that your desire is going to be for your husband, but he's going to rule over you. Rule? They, they were total equals before. They were total equals in, in God. Now he's going to rule over her. And so we see Adam, who was the king of all creation, he got to name all the animals. He only names Eve after the fall because he's ruler of her. That's a kingly thing to do is to name your subject. So he names her Eve, which means the mother of all the living, but one problem, their children aren't fully living because they're spiritually dead. And so Adam has to learn to be the headship over his wife in a priestly way. He didn't do that before because he didn't defend the garden. He didn't protect his bride, his queen, and he let the enemy right under his nose. So now the result of that for the woman's curse is that your desires for your husband, but he's going to be king over you, lord over you, master over you, rule over you. And that wasn't how it was originally supposed to be. They were totally equals in Christ before that. Male and female, God created them in his image and likeness. So these perfect union, these perfect equals, now because of the fall, have the man ruling over the woman. This isn't how God created it. We're supposed to be equals in God. Male and female, we're supposed to be equals. And that's why this unrest exists. He shall rule over you was not God's original plan. That was the curse to the woman. So there is an inequality and there's a tension there and we feel it all the time in our society because after the fall, everything was topsy-turvy. Everything was disordered after the fall. It's not perfect anymore. We're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in Eden anymore. So this disorderment gets rewrited in Jesus Christ. He rewrites everything. He, he sets the topsy-turvy. He, he puts it all back together perfectly. If, and that's a big if, if we live in Christ. Now, do we live in Christ? Steve and I should be totally equals in our marriage in Christ. But boy, we didn't live in Christ over the holidays too much. I mean, you know, I live more by the flesh many times. And we, you know. I got tired of serving. I got tired of washing feet. I got tired of cleaning up after kids. I got tired of picking up. But if we live in Christ, things are rewrited, reordered. But we have to live by the Spirit then and not the flesh. Paul tells us that time after time after time after time. It's hard to always live in the Spirit because we live in this world and we get our feet dirty. So everything was rewrited when he died on the cross, when I was baptized and I was washed clean from original sin. Then what happened? I got dirty feet. 
very quickly, very quickly. So the same with these guys. Everything was perfect. Then they sinned. Then they got exiled. They lost that deepest, 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 deepest communion with God. And they look at each other, and that's all they have is each other now. God's not there anymore. And so they figure out to cling to one another. Without God, that's all they got. He looks at her, she looks at him, and they, they cling to one another like never before. They're banished. They're out of that perfection of union. And they don't know what to do, so they cling. And they discover that their bodies fit together in a remarkable one flesh design way from God. Male and female, he created them in his likeness. And they cling to one another, and they unlock the most beautiful mystery through the complementarity of their bodies. And it's the most wonderful thing, and a beautiful image of God the Trinity has opened up through the design of their bodies. And I can't imagine what they must have thought, like, God's with us, God's with us again. For a split moment, God was with them again. He's here, they're imaging him, and it was wonderful. And it was paradise, and they were with God again. And that's what John Paul II calls the theology of the body. And here's his thesis statement. The body, in fact, and only, only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. That's all locked up in our body design, male and female. It goes on to say the body was created to transfer into the visible reality of the world the mystery hidden since time immemorial in God. God had this mystery hidden before the beginning of time. And it was to be, our bodies were to be a sign of God's mystery. So marriage is very, 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 very important. And someone's out to destroy it. Our bodies, male and female, God created them in the image and likeness of the Trinity. God created them. Only the body is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. So in some way, our body's going to teach us about God marrying humanity. And it's called a mystical or a spiritual marriage. And John, the evangelist, is professional at this. He gets it. He gets the spiritual marriage. He's a celibate priest, but he so understands the mystery of a mystical spiritual marriage in his writings. And we have to enter into his writings in the spiritual sense of scripture, or we won't get it. So in some ways, our bodies are going to teach us about God and his bride Israel in the Old Testament. And in some ways, our body is going to teach us about Christ and his bride, the Catholic Church, in the New Testament. It's both a marriage. And so we have to understand the analogy of marriage, the metaphor of marriage. And St. Paul and St. John really, really, really get this and use it a lot. So Adam and Eve cling to one another. They unlock this beautiful mystery that God's still with them. He's imaged through their bodies. They're imaging the Trinity. They become co-creators with God. They image the Trinity, and here's what they figure out. It's like this one flesh union, like God and Jesus, they're one. And the spirit of love and the spirit of life flows through them. And they look, and it's a new baby. This is an image of the Trinity. It's the most beautiful gift from God. And the family then becomes a model of the Trinity, because the family becomes the domestic church, the bride of Christ. It's a little mini model. And Satan hates that. He hates anything that images God because he can't have God anymore because he said, I will not serve and he's banished to hell for all eternity by his own choice. But he hates marriage, he hates family, he hates church because church is the bride of Christ and it's a marriage. So the sons of Adam and Eve learn to protect the family. They're a new priesthood. They learn to offer atonement to God and sacrifice through a familial priesthood. One son, Abel, was a more obedient priestly son than the other son, Cain. And Abel becomes a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Wait, 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 back then. Why? He's a priestly son whose innocent blood is poured out, and he is sacrificed innocently, totally innocently, and his blood cries out from the cursed ground. 
And that's what Adam's curse was. Adam, because of you, the ground's going to be cursed. And Abel's blood is sinking into the ground as an innocent offering. Something's coming. That's a prediction. We said it in the first Eucharistic prayer at Christmas. As you were pleased to accept the gifts of your servant Abel, the just. He's mentioned this many thousand years later. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, it's a marriage. You've got to understand this. God wants to wed all humanity. Now he has to figure out a plan. It's from Genesis to Revelation. Marriage, marriage, marriage. The Bible ends in the book of Revelation. We studied it last year. The very end was the marriage supper of the Lamb where the bride was unveiled. The church. God weds humanity. In the middle of the Bible, it's there too. Nuptial imagery. The Song of Solomon. I have found the one whom my soul loves. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. The prophets use all these marital images to call Israel back into right marriage with God. Time and time and time again, it's a marriage. And in the New Covenant, the New Testament of the Bible, John is going to see the wedding day of Jesus Christ as his crucifixion. And nobody sees it that way other than John. The wedding day that will bring God back into full union, into a full marriage with humanity is on the cross. That's what we're entering into. The Last Supper was his prenuptial wedding banquet, the groom's dinner. A Passover dinner where he's the main course. He's going to be the lamb that's served. The Passover lamb. Behold, the lamb of God. This is where we find ourselves today in the third Passover in John's gospel. It's a major allegorical theme. Next week's really marriage. John 14, marriage, marriage, marriage. This is the start of it today. And this was regarded as a very high level of writing in the Middle East to use allegorical rhetoric. And that's what John is master of. That's what Paul is master of. Paul was trained under Gamaliel, one of the best rabbis ever. Paul often wrote in allegory. That's why people have a hard time reading him sometimes. Metaphors, rhetoric, like in Ephesians 5. Listen to this. This reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. God weds humanity in Genesis. Then he's going to have the first, another, the next time he weds humanity will be just to Israel in the Old Testament. And then he's going to have a permanent wedding with all humanity in the New Testament. So after the fall, God married Israel. And for God, it's never changed. Marriage is permanent. Marriage is till death do us part. That's how God sees it, okay? So in order to be released from a binding marriage covenant... For God, one party must die. So which party died in the Old Testament marriage? This is key. Did Israel die? Did Israel die? Last time I looked, she's there, alive and well. We're going again in May. Israel's still alive. Did God die? Yes. God died in the second person on the cross. God died. That released him from that old marriage covenant. God died in the second person of the Trinity, and this released him from his marriage with Israel. And Paul knows it. Listen to this and think about it this way. This is what opened it up for me. A married woman is bound by the law. The married woman's Israel. She's bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's discharged from the law concerning her husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man. But while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, then she's free from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Who's been raised from the dead? Christ Jesus, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So Paul gets that analogy. So Israel has the option now to re-up into this new marriage covenant, come along into this new marriage with the risen God, with Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and the new wedding gift he's going to give them is the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And that'll be the power they need to live by 
the spirit and not by the flesh. And to stay in communion with God through all the mystical seven perfection of sacraments he's going to give us. Because we can't do it on our own. If Christ is the head of the body and the body's the church, then I love what Pope Leo said. That if Christ is the head of the church, the Holy Spirit is her soul. The Holy Spirit is the soul of the church because you've got body and soul. He's the head, we're the body, the Holy Spirit's the soul. Brilliant. John Paul echoes that, the soul of the church. He had a whole general audience on it. Pius XII said that the mystical body of Christ, that's us, the church, the Holy Spirit is the principle of every vital and truly salvific action in each of the body's various members. Holy Spirit is everything. It's the soul of us. Many Israelites said yes to the Holy Spirit. In fact, 3,000 came forward that day for baptism in the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All were Jewish. They all came into the new marriage covenant. But in Acts 10, the Gentiles also came in. Ah, the Gentiles came into the new marriage covenant. How? By the Holy Spirit. How did they get invited in? How did we know they were supposed to come in? The Jews said, this is our God. He revealed himself to us. This is our God. But Gentiles, guess what? It was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And Peter said, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people? They received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Even before they were baptized, God was pouring the Holy Spirit on them. Cornelius and his household. So Peter said, they got to be baptized. Oh, baptize them in the Trinity. So it's amazing how this marriage thing carries through. So we're approaching the wedding day, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And the Last Supper is tonight. And when we see icons of the bridegroom, this new bridegroom in this new covenant, he doesn't have on a tuxedo and he's not, you know, all spiffy. He's usually naked or with a robe that he's been mocked and spat on. He has blood dripping down a crown of thorns, not a wedding crown. And so the bride, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ has to stay in communion in this one flesh way with her bridegroom. Behold, the bridegroom comes. Don't fall into slumber. Stay, stay, stay awake. Stay with him. Stay with him. Stay with him. Stay with him. And no one knew that better than Mary. Mary's going to stay in this marriage. She's not going to run when the going gets tough. She's going to stay at the foot of the cross. She's going to endure the most mystical, spiritual union. He's the bridegroom for her, too. He's the lover of her soul. It's his sister and his bride, sister Israel and bride. She's the hinge pin between the two testaments, between the two marriages. And she doesn't run off. You know, my temptation is when things get hard, bolt. I got a problem, a conflict with a kid. I'm done with you. You know, I mean, he wants us to stay. He wants us to stay. And she knew that. And God wanted her to stay. Because God could have had her had a really peaceful death 10 years before this. She did it. She housed. She said yes to the incarnate. She gave birth to him. You know, when he went off on his ministry, she could have just fell asleep one night and just went up. No, God knows this is the most powerful time. This is her wedding day too. He doesn't want to deny her that. We want to sanitize everything and not suffer anymore and kill old people because it's so so merciful so they don't have to suffer. Take them away from the power of the cross. That's wrong. They had a mystical union through suffering, through the cross, and the resurrection is ever so more powerful. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A garden locked, a fountain sealed. She's a sealed virgin. He came into her, he went out of her. She's that gate in Ezekiel. She's sealed. She's a virgin. It's his sister, his bride. She stays in communion with what? The cross. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Here's the new tree of life. It's the cross. She stays right there. And guess what? She's going to get to eat that fruit really, really, really soon. 
because the choicest fruit of the New Testament is the fruit of her womb, and that's why we pray it in the Holy Mary, Mother of God. The fruit of her womb turns into the Eucharist. The fruit of her womb is Jesus. The fruit of her womb can't be eaten without the tree of life, the cross. We would have never got that without the cross, ever. We couldn't be in communion with our bridegroom without the cross. It's the new tree of life. And have you ever thought about Mary's very first communion? After it was all over, when she got communion for the very first time, when the bread of Christ was broken and given to her and she ate her son, can you imagine that? Her very first communion, Song of Solomon, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. He is her choicest fruit, and she's going to eat him. You are what you eat. Taste and see how sweet is this communion. How sweet is this union with the Trinity? It's the best thing we can have this side of the veil. Mary Jo now is at the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb. She's getting the real banquet feast. We get this here now. Benedict says in his apostolic exhortation that the Eucharist, this was on the Eucharist, the Eucharist is the root of every form of holiness, and each of us is called to the fullness of life in the Holy Spirit. How many saints have advanced along the way of perfection thanks to their Eucharistic devotion? What I'm going to talk about tonight is Catherine of Siena. But holiness has always found its center in the sacrament of the Eucharist, this most holy mystery that needs to be firmly believed, devoutly celebrated, and intensely lived in the church. Jesus' gift of himself in the sacrament, which is the memorial of his passion, tells us that the success of our lives, the success of your life, Okay, you want to be successful? Well, the success of your life is found in the participation of the Trinitarian life offered to you truly and definitively in him in the Eucharist. You want to be successful? Go to the Eucharist. There's a mystical marriage when we stay at the cross. There's a spiritual union, and Mary stayed and John stayed, and all the rest of them ran, and they bolted. And when the going got tough, the tough got going. Not these two. They are in a mystical marriage, and we can still have this today because of Jesus and the cross. It's the only way we can have this today. We can have this. That's why our first communion was your wedding day with Jesus. It's the very first time you got to be in communion with the Trinity in your body. And that's why we dress the little girls up like a virgin. It's their very first time they're going to Jesus, their bridegroom. And all the grandmas are crying, and they have their hankies out, and they don't know why it's so emotional, but because it's a wedding, it's a spiritual union right? We don't even know why we do this. And the little boys have to be little grooms and little girls have to be little brides because they're entering into a mystical union with Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's their wedding day with Jesus. And they're so pure and overjoyed because they get to have Jesus for the first time. But none of it would have happened without the cross. And Mary knows that. So the power is in the cross. The cross is where it's at. This is the hour. The most excruciating pain she ever knew and the most excruciating joy she ever knew. The cross freed us from sin and separation from the Trinity, from the Father. And the cross brought us back into communion with the Trinity. So this is such a powerful, powerful, powerful hour. Satan had no idea. Let's kill this guy and get it over with and have him done and out and gone. and pew, Ah, duped. This is the wedding night. This is the blood of the new covenant. And Mary stayed in communion with the cross. And it's her wedding day too. It's his wedding day and her wedding day and John's wedding day. The best man, he didn't leave. He witnessed it. I witnessed it. I witnessed it. Not I witnessed it. I, I witnessed it. These two remained as in a spiritual communion until the very end. So you can imagine, like, I regret that I didn't go see Mary Jo one more time. I saw her recently, but then I heard she died. And I thought, oh, shoot. If I could have just joined her in the cross one more time. 
But these guys stayed. They have no regrets, no remorse. They stayed in communion with him. You don't regret when you stay with the cross. You'll only regret if you don't stay with the cross. Don't leave when it gets hard. Other maidens stayed in communion as well. And we can't have our spiritual communion with him unless we embrace the cross, because that's where the power is. We have to embrace his cross. Some people want to sanitize the cross and just be resurrection Jesus, happy time Jesus. The power is in the corpse. The power is there. That's the hour of glory. And he is asking us to stay in communion with him always. Don't take him off the cross and sanitize it and make it no suffering. Embrace suffering. Embrace your cross. Stay. Because the resurrection is so awesome. Paul says, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am completing what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That's the church. Don't run from suffering. Rejoice in your sufferings. It's joining you to Christ at his most powerful hour. Such a gift. If Christ is the head, the body's the church, the Holy Spirit is her soul, that's where the communion is. Stay there. Don't run away. Now, after the cross, because of Jesus' cross, we have 77 recorded mystical marriages in the uh, Catholic Encyclopedia, 77 saints who went into an actual spiritual marriage with Jesus. And what does this mean? In the widest sense, that there is something called a mystical marriage. And it consists of a vision in which Christ, the bridegroom, tells a soul that he takes it for his own bride, presents it with a customary ring, and there's a a vision that's accompanied by a wedding ceremony. The Blessed Virgin and many saints and angels can be present. Seventy-seven documented saints had this. And I'm just going to talk about Catherine of Siena tonight because I fell in love with her studying all 77 of these, and I narrowed it down to her. She's only one of four female doctors of the church, of the 36 doctorates. She's one of them. So she's, she's very sound, is what I'm saying. She's the youngest of 25 children. Her parents had 25 kids. She's number 25. And at age seven, she consecrated, vowed her perpetual virginity to Jesus. She loved him right off the bat. And she was doing that. Her first vision, uh, her father opened the door and saw a dove over her head. And she had consecrated herself to him at age seven. Her mother did not like this. She, de- she, she would levitate. Catherine of Siena would levitate. And her mother would say, get down. This is childish fanaticism. You know? <laughs> and she would try to put an end to it. And Catherine chopped her hair off. She had beautiful long hair, and they had some means. She had beautiful clothes. She, she went into simple clothing and chopped her hair all off because she wanted Jesus to be her groom, and she didn't want to be attractive to anyone else and be swept up by another lover because she wanted Jesus. One time on Christmas Eve, she had a vision where Mary put baby Jesus right into her arms and blessed her as a spiritual mother and teacher, which she became both. To many popes sought her counsel. The mystical marriage, this is a spiritual marriage between her and Jesus. It is documented. Many paintings show her marrying. The first one was she was married to baby Jesus. And I kept seeing all these paintings of her marrying baby Jesus. And I thought, that's a little, he's a little young for her, you know. (laughs) And so in researching some more, I'm thinking, why is she marrying baby Jesus? Now remember, these mystical marriages always stay in union with the cross. That was part one of the Gospel of John, chapter 13, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.